All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, a Chief Warrant Officer, helicopter pilot, 1967 to 71, did a little tour of Vietnam in 1969. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I'm really excited to have you here today. We've got a lot of things that we're going to be covering. We're going to be talking uh, about uh, suicide because it is September, which is Suicide Prevention Month. And uh, one of our guests is from an organization called 22 a Day. And I'm going to be bringing her on in just a moment. We also have uh, Kate Melcher is on to talk about an upcoming event for Veterans Radio. We have a fundraiser coming up on the 25th. And Kate's going to fill us all in on what exactly is going to happen on that day. And uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. This is our first attempt at fundraising as a, you know, as a nonprofit organization. It's called Radio on the River. And we're going to be doing a live program from a uh, residence there on the Huron River here in the Ann Arbor, Michigan area. So we're kind of excited to see how that goes. And I can see that Derek, who's our board operator here at WAM, going, oh, that ought to be swell. Uh, let's see how. And uh, we think it'll work out pretty well. <laughs> so we're hoping about that. Hey, if you'd like to get involved and come on out, for those of you that are in the Southeast Michigan area, please do come out to Radio on the River. Um, go to our website, veteransradio.net, and click on the banner ad right there. It's got a real nice picture of, of the Huron River, where we're going to be, and all the information that you need um, is there. Kate's going to kind of fill that in. As we go along, and then the main portion of our program today is going to be devoted to our foreign uh, relations expert, foreign affairs expert, uh, Rebecca Grant. And uh, I had a chance to talk with Rebecca yesterday, and she's going to fill us in on what's going on in the world as far as uh, England, Russia, Ukraine, China, South Korea. I think that's all that we talked about, but it was pretty interesting. And uh that's it. So you got to stick around and listen to all of those things that are going to be on Veterans Radio today. I wanted to remind people that, you know, you could be listening to uh, Veterans Radio here on WAM or here on WDTK in Detroit, Michigan. Um, tomorrow, you're going to be able to listen to it on KMET, which is out near Palm Springs, California. They broadcast the program at 9 a.m. Western time. And uh, also next to Saturday morning on KFOW in Owatonna, Owatonna, Minnesota, which is in the south central part of Minnesota. And they broadcast the program at 6 a.m. on Saturdays. And, of course, uh, tomorrow at 11 o'clock Eastern time, this whole program will be uploaded to our podcast. And also later tonight, it will be uploaded to our website in our archives. So you can listen to all 19 years of Veterans Radio if you want to. That's our goal is to tell stories, keep you informed as to what's going on as far as veterans are concerned, veterans and their families are concerned. So we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to listen to us when you get a chance. All right, now I need to go to our sponsors. Wow, we can't do this program at all without our sponsors. So first of all, we want to thank Legal Help for Veterans, and they specialize in veterans' disability claims. And you can call Legal Help for Veterans at 800-693-4800, or you can go to LegalHelpForVeterans.com and start a claim right there if you want to. 
The other is the National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC. And the uh, NVBDC is the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses. You want to do business with the United States government and with many corporations as a veteran-owned business, you need to get certified. So for more information, you can go to the, uh, their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 888-237-8433. The Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, is a proud supporter of Veterans Radio. For more information about them, you can go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. Learn more about the organizations and their services, as well as how you can become a supporter of Veterans Radio, either as your business or corporation or as an individual. Just go to veteransradio.net, click on our sponsors, or hit the donate button. I feel like I'm on NPR or, or you know, <laughs> one of those fundraising things going on here, and that's what we're trying to do. And in order to expand our marketplace, we unfortunately have to pay for the services of many commercial stations, and we also have to update, upgrade our equipment so that we can keep up with the times. We've been doing this for 19 years, and I tell you, the technology has trained dramatically over that 19-year time period. We also want to thank, of course, our local veterans organizations for their long time and continued support. That includes the Irwin Press Corps and American Legion Post number 46 and the Charles S. Kettles Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 310, both in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Without the support of these men and women, we just can't be here every week. So thank you to all of them. First up today, I want to talk me. I want you to meet a young woman who is part of an organization called 22aday.org. So joining me on the line right now from Chicago, Illinois, is Wendy Hibbets. And Wendy, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you, Dale. It's good to be with you. And thank you for your service. Thank you very much. It's always, it was my pleasure at the time, and it was an honor as I look back on it now. Uh, so tell me, how did you all get involved in the um, the 22aday.org? I mean, we all know Unfortunately, that there's at least 22 suicides a day by veterans, which is unacceptable anywhere. So, so how did you decide to start this organization? We actually took it over from another organization. They had started it. They had family members that had committed suicide. And it got to the point where it was just way too emotional for them. <clears throat> and they were called um, the, like the Veterans Refugee, I think, or Veterans Refuge. So we decided uh, oh, yes, to take it right, over from right. them. Right. Okay. I remember and, them. Yes. So we took it over from them. Um, we built our own crosses, and we decided to make this our mission. It's unacceptable that 22, a minimum of 22 veterans a day commit suicide throughout the United States of America. And we want to we help bring awareness to that and help bring the resources and the support that people need to help bring this down because not enough is being done. Right. And so what, what is your organization doing uh, right now? Since September is Suicide Prevention Month, and I know that annually, well, now it's annually with your organization, what is it that you do to recognize this, this unheard of number? Well, what we're doing right now is we're doing a display out at the Ypsilanti Township Civic Center, which is also where the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is located. We put up 22 crosses every day at noon. And we'll continue that throughout the 30 days until we have 660 crosses. And it's, when you see it, it is, 
it's a sight to behold. It, it really brings the magnitude of that number. And we'd like people to come out and join us. It, it really does. I mean, you know, you, you go by there the first day and it's 22. Okay, 22. That's sad. That's upsetting. Now we're into the 18th day and I can't do the math in my head, but we've got, what, 300 crosses up there now? Yes. And and if you, all you got to do is drive by and you, you can see it. Where is this, uh, where is it located for those that are in the Ann Arbor, Southeast Michigan area? It's located in Ypsilanti Township. It is right off of Huron River Drive. So if you're getting off on 94, you get off at the Huron Street exit. Um. It's right where the Civic Center is. It's 7200 uh, Veterans Drive. And you'll if you turn down there, you'll see it. You can't miss it. Right, because you have a nice big trailer there with us. We, your we do have a it. big trailer, which was purchased with private funds. So that's also part of our goal is we're trying to do some fundraising. Because we would like to take this, this display and put it as many places throughout the state as we can. And eventually throughout the country. Oh, absolutely. It, it, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful what you're doing and it's, it's so, I don't know what the word is, so emotional to look at these. And, and I've gotten some pictures recently over the last couple of weeks from a couple of other areas around the state are, that are doing similar things. I don't know if they repeated it up in, I think it was up in Howell that they did one, one last year. And then there's one out in Onstead, Michigan. And, um, I, I, it certainly is worthwhile to get, you know, get people to understand this. And I, 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 the people that were involved, first of all, I think that they have moved to Missouri, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And, uh, I'd be, I, I'd be wondering if they set that up out there. To my knowledge, they did not. To my knowledge, it was, it just became too emotional for them to do this. It, it was, it was, it was a young couple that was doing this and it, it, you know, they started it because um, I believe he, I'm not sure if both of them were, but I believe he was an Afghan, you know, Iraq war veteran and lost a number of his friends. And that was yeah. the motivation behind it. And it, it you know, it, it does. It's, it's all these things take an emotional toll on veterans and people think, you know, once you get out of service, you're all done. You're never done. You're never done. My father was, a, was in Vietnam and battled with this issue and with his mental health through PTSD and the rest of it till the day he died. And it's only by the grace of God, my father's not a name on that cross. So you guys, it's a lifelong battle for a lot of people. People have no understanding what it's like, and that's part of what we want to bring. We want to help bring that understanding that 20, a minimum of 22 people a day. How is that ever acceptable in the United States? It's, it's, it's not. And I think the number, as I mentioned earlier, is probably closer to 40 to 50 a day. I believe uh, it is. You know, we got to get these numbers down. So on your website, you've got some great information about how your organization can help. And, of course, you have some great links. And I noticed that the um, Veterans, Crisis, Veterans Crisis Hotline, um, which is prominent on and pretty much every veterans organization's website these days, which is, again, kind of a sad tale. But uh, now you can just dial 988. Yes. 988 and press uh, number one after that, and it'll take you right to a counselor. Somebody is always there 24 hours a day, somebody to help you out. And I really encourage anybody who's within sound of our voice, wherever it is across the country, if you know a veteran who's having issues, 
who's having difficulty, who's kind of becoming a hermit, give them a call, go over and knock on the door, see if they, you know, if they need help. This is the only thing that we can do is to let them know that they're not alone. Exactly. And, and that's the most prominent thing. The loneliness that people feel is a lot of what helps bring all of this out. So we need to be stay in touch, even if it's a phone call, a knock on the door, whatever it is. And we have the resources on there. We also have our phone number. So if, if you're somebody that, that feels like, hey, you know, my son, my husband, my brother, whatever, um, is going down this path and I don't know what to do, give us a call. And what is that number, Wendy? Um, I knew you were going to ask that. It's 734-726-4101. And it's on Seven, our website. 734 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, Okay. 726-4101. It's 22 a day. The number 22 and then a day.org. Check right. it out. I think you'll find it very interesting and it's something that you could copy. You've got permission from <laughs> this organization. Contact them and set up another organization exactly the same wherever you happen to be across the country. And they've got it all down, Pat. They've got it down to a science. They can help you with what you need to do to set this up. Correct? Correct. All right, Wendy, thank you very much for being on Veterans Radio. I look forward to uh, seeing you sometime in the next couple of weeks because I plan on going out there myself and helping put in those crosses. It's, it's the least I can do. That would be wonderful. I look forward to seeing you, Dale. All right. Thank you very much, Wendy. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right, that's one of the things that we do here on Veterans Radio is we want to highlight your organization. If you're doing something that is helping veterans, let us know, and we'll try to get you on the air, at least on our website, to um, as, a, as a resource so that veterans know where they can go. Veterans and their families know where to go because there's a whole lot of things that are out there that many veterans and their families aren't aware of, not only with the suicide prevention but with benefits, health care, all types of things. So if you have anything that you think we should be talking about here on Veterans Radio, send me an email. That's dale at veteransradio.net. D-A-L-E, dale at veteransradio.net. All right, moving right along, let's get the program continuing onward. We are going to uh, go to an interview that my partner, uh, Jim Falzone, did with Kate Melcher. And Kate is a board member for uh, Veterans Radio America. And so let's go to that right now, Derek. Ready? Okay, here we go. This is Jim talking with Kate. We want to welcome here on Veterans Radio, uh, Kate Melcher. Kate is a, a board member for Veterans Radio America. Um, and she's going to tell us about uh, Radio on the River. But before we get there, I should mention that Kate graduated from the University of Arizona and uh, spent some time doing different interesting jobs in Washington, D.C., and then joined the United States Army, spent uh, about seven and a half years in the Army, learned how to fly helicopters and became a uh, helicopter pilot, 
um, and uh, has uh, in her current role, she's the executive director of Fisher House Michigan for about uh, almost six years now, helping bring funding in to create uh, Fisher Houses both in Ann Arbor and in Detroit, Michigan near VA medical centers. So Kate, uh, with all your veteran-centric uh, uh, work, we really appreciate that you're helping out Veterans Radio and being on its board. Well, it's a pleasure to get to do this. And uh, thanks again for inviting me to be on the radio with you today. It's, well, uh, we always have great conversation. We, we do. And we're going to focus it here on the first ever fundraiser for Veterans Radio. Tell me about uh, Radio on the River. So I have found, you know, in the six years working for Fisher House that the the thing that every veteran wants to tell is their story. You know, Veterans Radio has been all about, you know, capturing the oral history and, you know, veteran storytelling in a place where, you know, that, that wasn't always um, acceptable. Uh, so Radio on the River is actually a place where we can continue that veteran storytelling conversation. Um, we are meeting in Ann Arbor over on um, here on River. And it'll be a nice sort of um, garden party in the afternoon where we get to hear from some pretty amazing veterans. Um, it'll be rather casual. It's it's not a big stage and, and not a big production, but it's a place where you can have a conversation with a World War II veteran, with a Navy veteran who was the skipper of a squadron of F-18s that were just doing training exercises on 9-11 when they got scrambled to go be the first F-18s on station. Um, you know, we've, we've got all kinds of folks that are going to be telling these sorts of stories and it's in an intimate setting. You get to have one-on-one conversation with these folks and it's just a wonderful way to learn more about our veterans, their service and how they continue their service now that they've taken the uniform off. Well, and it's going to be done in a backyard, as you say, garden party kind of setting, casual. There'll be some food, there'll be some drinks, some silent auction, and discussions with a, a lot of soulmates for many of us. Yes, um, indeed. So I think it's a great way in which to support Veterans Radio, which has been telling America veterans stories for now going on 19 years. Uh, Dale and his uh, compatriots were doing this when it wasn't at all popular. And so it's really great to keep this uh, institution, if you will, going. If people are interested in either coming to Radio on the River or supporting Veterans uh, Radio America, how do they go about doing this, Kate? Well, the easiest way is to go to veteransradio.net. If you navigate there, the very first thing on our website is going to be Radio on the River. And you can click through. You can buy tickets to Radio on the River. You can become a company sponsor. Um, or you can just make a donate uh, donation to support. This is uh, in Michigan, in Ann Arbor. So you know, we have listeners all over the country. And whether or not you can actually make it to Ann Arbor on September 25th, uh, you still have the opportunity to support. Um, at the end of the event, we're going to be doing a live broadcast. So for the folks who can't be in Michigan, you'll also get the opportunity to participate with, with some of our storytellers from that afternoon. And this is an afternoon event, as you say. It'll be Sunday, September 25th from 2 to 5 p.m. And at 5 p.m., the uh, live uh, radios will go on and, and more of these stories will be aired uh, both on AM and FM radio as well as ultimately getting posted on the Internet. One of the cool things I heard somebody wanting to do uh, in terms of uh, support from out of state was being saying, hey, I'm going to buy a ticket, 
but I want you to find a, a veteran or a student veteran uh, and donate that ticket to them. So that's a cool way to participate too, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, we have a very active student veteran population at the University of Michigan and at Washtenaw Community College and at Michigan State. Um, but, you know, we were all college students once and, you know, maybe a ticket to this event was a little bit out of reach. But sponsoring a ticket for those student veterans is a great way to get a younger generation involved. You know, I'm a post 9-11 vet, but I'm one of the more senior ones. Um, so it would be really great to have folks even younger than me um, that that are that have served or are still serving, getting them involved early on in the culture of veteran storytelling. Veteran storytelling is how we take care of each other. It's it's how we process trauma in some cases. It's how we learn about benefits. It's it's all of these things. And and having our younger generation of veterans start to gather like this in ways that we haven't quite been successful in doing at, at legions and other places. You know, here's an opportunity for them to gather outside on the river, a beautiful Sunday afternoon. We'll feed them, we'll give them some drinks, and uh, we'll listen to some great veteran storytelling. Well, I, it sounds like a wonderful opportunity to support uh, Veterans Radio America. As I say, it's been on the air for 19 years. Not always been popular to be on the air, and it costs a little money to keep it up, although this is primarily a passion project for everybody involved. Um, so it's Radio on the River, September 25th. You can go to veteransradio.net and click on the banner and support uh, the cause or buy a ticket and show up. We'd love to have you. Or donate a ticket, a very cool idea. Uh, Kate, anything else you want to pass along to our listeners? I'm just excited to see folks on Sunday the 25th. Uh, veteransradio.net is a great place to start. Whether you can join us that day or not, there's always a ton of information and other veteran storytelling um, always available on our veteransradio.net and via our podcasts. So we look forward to seeing you and thank you for your support. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Kate. Mark your calendars, 25th of September, 2 to 5 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you can't make it here in person, please go to that banner ad about radio on the river and make a donation to support Veterans Radio. Okay, we're going to take a real quick break right now for our Medal of Honor segment. And when we come back, we're going to have our interview with Rebecca Grant. So uh, as we're ready to go, we're going to be back after Rebecca's uh, interview. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Lance Corporal Richard Anderson rolled onto a live grenade, saving the life of his companions. Details after this. This is boot camp. This is the real thing now. You've never done anything so hard in your life. You don't understand how you can finish. It takes inner strength and desire to become a Marine. When I, I finished, I was like, I did it. The moment I will never forget is when this drill instructor that I admire so much comes up to me and said, good morning, Marine. PFC Summer Volkman became a United States Marine. Can you? Call 1-800-MARINES. While conducting a patrol during the early morning hours in the Quang Tri province in Vietnam, Anderson's reconnaissance team came under heavy volume of automatic weapons and machine gun fire from a numerically superior and well-concealed enemy force. Although painfully wounded in both legs and knocked to the ground during the initial moments of the fierce firefight, 
Anderson assumed a prone position and continued to deliver intense suppressive fire in an attempt to repulse the attackers. Moments later, he was wounded a second time by an enemy soldier who had approached to within eight feet of the team's position. Undaunted, he continued to pour a relentless stream of fire on the assaulting unit, even while a companion was treating his leg wounds. Observing an enemy grenade land between him and the other Marine, Anderson immediately rolled over and covered the lethal weapon with his body, absorbing the full effects of the detonation. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help, but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Here we are. We're back here on Veterans Radio, and today's guest is our favorite foreign expert, foreign policy expert. It's Dr. Rebecca Grant. And as we all know, she is the uh, historian and author, commentator. She's president of, of IRIS Independent Research. Uh, she can be heard on the Smithsonian Channel, Fox News, CNN, Veterans Radio, of course, and all kinds of other media outlets talking about air power and national security. So, Dr. Grant, welcome back. Great to be talking with you again, Dale. Always good to talk to you. So, all right, so we've had a lot of things going on, obviously, since we last talked back in June. And uh, I guess the first one we should look at is uh, Queen Elizabeth um, passing away, and now we've got King Charles III. At age 96, it was still a shock uh, to me personally, and a shock, I think, to the world and certainly to the United Kingdom to see Elizabeth pass on. I've been surprised a little at the at the depth of feeling um, from myself and others about her, and I think some of it really is because Queen Elizabeth was the last leader of that World War II generation. She was a teenager when the war ended, served in uniform, as a, was training as a mechanic, um, and she didn't take the throne until, you know, the, the early 1950s, and yet her first prime minister was Winston Churchill. She lived through the bombing of London in Buckingham Palace. Her family famously refused to leave, and she was that, that last head of state from that World War II generation, and just a symbol, I think, of the great strides made by Great Britain and by the West and the triumph in the Cold War and, and so many good and wonderful things that happened. She will just be very sorely missed. Well, that's true. Do, do you see any, I can't imagine there to be any change in the um, foreign policy of the United Kingdom, can you? Well, everyone is watching to see what King Charles will do. He's been a very active and outspoken, and we know that climate is one of his big concerns, climate, and then the, the, the real uh, green issues of environment and sustainable farming and, you know, things you can actually get on with and do something about. As for foreign policy, we've seen he will continue the trend of very close U.S. 
and Britain relations, and then also the banding together of Western allies on issues like Ukraine and opposition to China. Remember, England also has a new prime minister. Queen Elizabeth's last official act was to invite Liz Truss to form a conservative government, replacing Boris Johnson. And Liz Truss, if anything, is even more anti-China and aware of the many insidious threats that China poses. So expect Britain to remain an ally uh, out in the lead of pointing out that we have to be awful careful what we do with China. Right. We'll we'll, we'll be talking about China a little bit more as as we go along with this. Um, So we've got Queen Elizabeth is gone. Charles III is is uh you know taking the throne here shortly it is kind of interesting um just the idea of of kings and queens and the transition from one to another you know based on you know who's in the family um actually kind of interesting i i I was wondering i I did read some things about those some of the other um commonwealths i guess you could say are kind of reviewing their uh attachment to the united kingdom and thinking maybe they might want to go on their own you heard anything about that? Yes. The Commonwealth has, oh, 50 or more members, some of whom have joined more recently, and then some who have exited the Commonwealth. It was a major priority for Queen Elizabeth to offer this very unique forum. I mean, a lot of it is made up of previous uh, colonies, but, you know, now it's all a, a very voluntary organization. It's got benefits of, um, you know, all the good things in international relations can be seen in the Commonwealth. But I think this royal family moving forward with King Charles at the head is going to have to forge a new identity. And one of the issues will be how to modernize and strengthen relations with the Commonwealth. Now, sadly, it was Queen Elizabeth's hope that Prince Harry and his wife, uh, Duchess Meghan would be key players with the Commonwealth and diplomacy. We know that's not happening since they have stepped back right. from royal life and caused such controversy. So it kind of leaves open the question of who in the royal family will pick up that um, that diplomatic mission with the Commonwealth and how that will look in the future. Yeah, you know, there may be a few more countries that leave, but the vast majority are staying, and it's a great opportunity to reconfirm, you know, historic bonds that are still really useful in the modern age. So hopefully King Charles can pull that one off. Yeah, because we don't know how long he'll be around. (laughs) And then you go on to King William. That's right. That's right. (laughs) At least they have the succession is in a better position than maybe ever in the entire history of kings going back to Alfred the Great in the pre-medieval times. But with uh, William, Prince of Wales, next in line, and then, of course, his uh, very young son, George, who I believe is just nine years old, next in line. But nonetheless, that is two heirs right in place, and that, that puts them in a good spot. So, um, as, as you know, as someone once said about the U.S. democracy, you know, it's a, it's a republic if you can keep it. I think right now King Charles's job is he has a monarchy if you can keep it. And it's going to be down to the performance of Charles and, of course, of uh, uh, Prince William and his wife, Kate, and the others that are chosen in the royal family to 
yeah. to, uh, to carry on, but in a modern way. It'll be interesting to uh, to see how that turns off, turns out. So let, let's. And of course, uh, we'll have an immensely interesting state funeral to observe uh, on on Monday to see. Uh, I believe President Biden is going and to see what heads of states turn up and who says what to whom. Another final occasion to celebrate. Queen Elizabeth and all that she stood for. That's, well, that's true, you know, because there's going to, well, yeah, then a lot of uh, diplomatic moves are going to be made is who's invited, who's not invited, and, and uh, you know, do they get to ride in a bus or do they get to bring their own security? And, and it's been fascinating. And plan in Westminster Abbey. Yeah. My, oh, my, that will be very interesting to watch. I know all, everyone will be watching the heads of state and the world leaders yeah, it's always interesting to watch, interesting to watch the dynamics of you know all the all the nonverbal communication that goes on between the different heads yes. of state. And can Charles project that aura that Queen Elizabeth was just so good at? I mean, can mm-hmm. he do as well without making speeches, but just with projecting that that royal aura that? monarch's image can he be as good as his mom was well we're about to find out we shall we shall so if we move a little bit east and probably south we're going to let's take a look at the ukraine kind of isn't that kind of surprising it's very surprising to me that they're able they've been able to hold out against the russian armies i think everyone is surprised but they have worked to put this in place and they, so on September 11, it was declared that Ukraine's forces had taken back all of the, uh, the, the state or the oblast of Kharkiv. They had controlled most of the city of Kharkiv, but now they were able to push out in a really quick counteroffensive, and they moved so quickly that the Russians had to retreat lest they be cut off, right? And even more, in a way, important than the city of Kharkiv was a, another little city called Izum. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, back here on the East Coast, we have I-95, right? It's the main road that runs from New York all the way down south and a little further north. So imagine that, you know, Izum is like one of those key cities on a major interstate in Ukraine. Russia had taken it back in the early summer, and Ukraine has now taken it back. And that guards a whole range of territory off to the west from Kramatorsk right on through um, all the way. And the fact that Ukraine has uh, denied Russia any further advances there and now taken territory back is just hugely significant. The tactics are just so interesting in this Ukrainian counteroffensive. What do you see Russia doing next? Oh, my gosh, I wouldn't want to be in their position. It, it's, you know, that Russia is failing on, really on all levels. They had a bad strategy, a bad plan, a bad idea to invade Ukraine, and they had a bad plan. But the real failure that they probably can't overcome is their failure with tactics. And it's things that, that you know, your listeners and you are going to really understand the Ukrainian forces, you know, with a lot of help from the U.S. and allies, have standoff weapons. And they can attack uh, using the artillery or drones, helicopters, you name it. They can attack while standing off farther back. 
the Russians aren't as good at that. They have kept their uh, supplies and front lines very close together as they made their kind of step-by-step advances in the east earlier in the summer. They just don't have this tactical ingenuity to, that that we see with the Ukrainian forces, which I I clear to me, you know, as we know, are getting a lot of tactical coaching, but they're the ones out doing the fighting. And we've seen Russian failures just at so many levels, whether it's logistics, command and control, uh, poor use of their aviation assets. And that that tactical failure time and time again, I, I don't think they're able to significantly change that at this point, given their losses and given their continued tactical failures as we saw in Kharkiv. So what they do next um, is going to involve a good bit of pulling back. I think there's no question, and that could start to happen a little bit down in the south as well as in the northeast and the east. So, you know, it kind of sounds like it it may end up being all for naught, and, you know, that, that they just didn't think that they would get pushed, that they... Ukrainians were going to be able to push back as strongly as they did, along with the, obviously with the cooperation of you know, the rest of the world. Well, two things happened. We underrated Ukraine um, a lot. <laughs> and I think all through the Western military establishment, and this despite having conducted some pretty regular training operations along with NATO partners with Ukraine. But no question, we underrated Ukraine's military and their political cohesion. No one saw what Zelensky would become and the type of wartime leader he'd be. Then the second thing was we overrated Russia. You know, we watched them build up their forces, conduct large force exercises with 20 and 30,000 troops, uh, have war games with China and all this, and yet we somehow missed the fact that they just weren't real good at certain types of operations. And despite little clues, from our various encounters with them in Syria, whether that was air-to-air or, you know, occasionally some of the ground forces in Syria got pretty close. And the word back from the the service members involved was, hey, these Russians really kind of didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know where we were. They didn't know where they were. You know, the little signs were there, but we we overrated Russia's military abilities. Um, Thank heavens. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I think we've also been able to make things very difficult for them um, by assisting Ukraine's air defenders, by continuing to ensure that Ukraine gets commercial space overhead imagery, keeping Ukraine's government Internet going. A lot of things that Russia was counting on to make Ukraine collapse. They just didn't happen. And that's why Ukraine is still fighting. And, and to my eye, why Ukraine right now is winning. Yeah, it's got to be a big, big, big embarrassment, obviously, to 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 Putin. And of course, you know, the the rumors that are out there, you know, his I don't think he'll ever get thrown out of power. But, uh, you know, that there there are, there are people upset with what's occurring in in the in the Russian government. Definitely. And you remember a few weeks ago, um, the daughter of one of his close associates was killed in a car bomb. Apparently there was another vehicle attack recently. And so someone sent in a message, uh, a message to Putin. But, you know, it's interesting to look at our European allies in NATO and what their view is. And their view is 
you know, this just proves it once and for all. Russia is really dangerous, you know, especially the countries like the Baltics and Poland that have a, that share a border with Russia. And you know, this war could end tomorrow, and it will still be a generation before the Eastern European countries, our NATO partners, are relaxed at all. They intend, you know. Whether Ukraine, they could end tomorrow, and they would still be worried about Putin coming after one of them. So it's completely changed the security situation in Europe. It's been great for the cohesion of NATO. I heard a joke the other day that in a Dutch uh, military base back in their uh, the bar, they have a picture of Putin, and it says NATO Employee of the Month because Putin <laughs> has done so much for NATO cohesion. And that means, though, for us as Americans, this is now a long-term commitment to containing Russia and making sure that they don't try anywhere else what they've tried in Ukraine. And of course, Russia has got to lose in Ukraine. They just, they have to lose. It's vital, not only for Europe, but really for world security. Oh, I, I, I agree. And it's, it's nice to see it headed in that direction. I mean, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. You said it. <laughs> All right. So let's, um, you mentioned some other, you know, you, you talked about, you know, what the Ukrainians have been doing in recapturing different parts of their country, which I think is amazing. Um, let's go move on over to uh, China. What have they been up to lately? <laughs> right. China is, uh, is on the move. So Xi Jinping, for the first time since COVID, has made a trip to a foreign country. He visited, uh, uh, last week he visited Kazakhstan, and then he went to Uzbekistan for a meeting of, they call it the Shanghai Cooperation Council. And it's kind of a little pipsqueak alliance that involves China and a couple of the Central Asian republics, and I think maybe Iran's trying to apply to join. And, um, and of course, Xi Jinping also met with Vladimir Putin, and they had not been together in person since the Beijing Olympics back in February. So interesting, the statements that came out. So whereas six months ago, it was, oh, we're got unlimited cooperation, friendship, all this. The statement out of this meeting from Uzbekistan was very chilly. Xi Jinping said, yes, we're going to cooperate on trade and agriculture and other pragmatic areas, but none of the open arms and robust friendship statements that we saw in February. And this is because China is horrified at what Putin has done, his failure in Ukraine. You know, it's just ridiculous, uh, you know, and partly because, remember, China bought a lot of Russian military equipment in the past, and they make a lot of their own, some real good stuff. But they rely on the Russian model a good deal for their training and military doctrine. And, of course, China has no combat experience of their own. I think she has been looking at this Russian debacle in Ukraine and saying, oh, my gosh. You know, The other thing for Xi is he has a big party congress coming up in mid-October. He expects to get an unprecedented third term as China's leader. So he has to go out and make a couple of international visits and keep everything calm and copacetic until he gets the political job done. And remember, 
you know, China, a lot of China is still under COVID lockdown because they have a zero COVID policy. So a couple COVID tests in the city, they'll lock it down. So part of this trip was just to try to show that they're beginning to turn the corner with the lockdowns and beginning to get back to normal. But mm, it's pretty underwhelming, pretty much a pipsqueak alliance out there. It doesn't sound very good. The the immediate threat that I've been watching is the threat to Taiwan. Oh, my goodness, yes. And, you know, the Ukraine and Taiwan are really interlinked. I mean, it's complex, but to boil it down, you know, everything that happens in Ukraine is going to factor into the Chinese military assessments of their operations against Taiwan if they choose to go down that road. Now, she has made it really clear that he expects to get Taiwan back someday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's been more forceful than other Chinese leaders. But to my mind, he certainly cannot risk a big military operation prior to this October party congress. They only have it once every five years. It's a very big deal politically. He's going to change out some of his subordinate leadership as well. But after that, mm, I don't know. And I expect to see the pressure on Taiwan remain because that makes Xi Jinping look good to his buddies that are going to give him this third term that he wants. And the exercises that they did several weeks ago now were, um, they were pretty scary in a lot of ways. You know, it looked like a naval blockade around Taiwan, but it was also an air blockade. China's Navy ships, of course, carry air defense systems. Mm -hmm. So ringing Taiwan with those ships is partly to show, hey, we can stop air traffic in and out of Taiwan. You know, if the allies come to help Taiwan with air power, we can stop some of that. That's what they're trying to demonstrate. Now, my judgment China's not quite there yet, but they sure were trying to fly the big force packages, multiple fighters, bombers, other aircraft together to kind of show that they can tuck Taiwan in under them anytime they want to. They They are not quite ready to do that yet militarily, thank heavens, but there's no question this threat remains. It's very serious. So another lesson for us to draw from Ukraine is that Taiwan needs to have its defenses in place before anything happens, right? So um, President Trump began and President Biden has continued more robust U.S. arms sales. This is things like air defenses, Patriot air defense missiles, uh, Reaper drones, new F-16s, other things that will help Taiwan defend. And Dale, as you know, there's been this string of Congressman, of course, Nancy Pelosi, the most visible, mm-hmm. visiting Taiwan. But really, there's been someone going every week for the last several weeks. And I like that because it shows that it's a good form of deterrence. You know, it shows that they're, that Congress is very closely watching what goes on with Taiwan. And that's, that's a good deterrence back to Beijing. Yeah, I think just the idea that they're going there to kind of shows that we're, you know, that we are supporting Taiwan, continuing to continue to support Taiwan. We're talking uh, right now with Rebecca Grant um, about foreign policy in in America and the idea of 
China, uh, of course, is increasing their their navy or their naval power, aren't they? They are. And here's something I really want to uh, let everybody know about, and that is China has made such huge inroads on Guadalcanal. Now, it was 80 years ago that the U.S. Marines landed on Guadalcanal to stop Imperial Japan from finishing the bomber base at what became Henderson Field. Right. It's, this is this was a month after Midway. Uh, the U.S. was still reeling from Pearl Harbor, but Admiral Ernie King made this great decision to go land on Guadalcanal. And of course, the Marines had a terrible fight there. The Navy fought six huge battles in the islands and straits around Guadalcanal. Well, so we all know it. We all. I had an uncle who was a Marine. Two uncles who were Marines. We all know Guadalcanal. Well, guess what? Two weeks ago. A U.S. Coast Guard cutter, big ship, pulled in to Guadalcanal for fuel, planned stop, and they were turned away because of China. China has um, moved in, built a lot of the port infrastructure, built a sports stadium, and has the government of the Solomon Islands, where there are 800,000 people who live there now, just eating out of their hand. And they basically said to, to tell the U.S. ships, they can't make a port call in Guadalcanal. So, you know, we lost Guadalcanal. We didn't lose it to Japan in the 1940s, 1942, yeah. but we've lost it. Now, the, it, you can go a long way back. It was the Clinton administration that lowered the diplomatic presence there. Um, we have seen um, Biden did send uh, State Department officials out uh, several weeks ago to, to try to start to fix this mess. But these are the kind of things, you know, you know China's doing this on purpose. And almost for the same reason, because Guadalcanal at the base of the Solomons still remains a crucial island for controlling the sea routes to Australia. That was what made it crucial in 1942. It's still important today as Australia's hugely important ally and military partner in Pacific security issues for us and for themselves. So these are the things that you, we just constantly have to try to be on top of. We spent so much time trying to be friendly to China, hoping they'd change. But they have shown, at least under Xi Jinping, their true face is very aggressive. They hate the West. They're supporting Russia's war in Ukraine with all the energy purchases. And they are just, um, they really are the number one threat, like the Pentagon says. Yeah, well, you know, and then we have, of course, we have our other little threat in that part of the world, and that's in North Korea. What have they been up to? North Korea apparently has been selling artillery shells to Russia, <laughs> which is just, it's just crazy. It's interesting. Why do we know this? The, the White House, the Biden White House has uh, really done some interesting selective intelligence leaks so that we know that Russia is shopping for uh, drones in Iran, shopping for ammunition in North Korea. It tells us Russia is really uh, on the ropes for war material. But it also unfortunately says that North Korea right now is just tucked right back under um, China's sleeves, if you will, and that China is is enjoying having North Korea be a, a, a provocation, you know, to the U.S. There's a new government in South Korea that I think is going to be a bit tougher um, on North Korea and a really staunch uh, ally in there from South Korea. But you know, this this situation just goes on. We have been told as well that uh, North Korea may be preparing for a seventh nuclear test. 
they've done a lot of work at their nuclear test site. Unclear um, what will happen, but the State Department told us months ago that they could almost at any time do another nuclear test. But I'm telling you, they'll coordinate that with Beijing. Right. Yes. Like everybody likes to go around poking sticks in everybody's eyes. Just (laughs) let them know that they're there. Certainly that's what China is doing, and it's it's not rational, and it's, it's you know it's maybe it's not the Chinese people, but it sure is the Chinese Communist Party. And every, as you know, every business operation, every foreign investment, every deal that we do in China is you know the, the Communist Party runs that place, and it, it benefits them. And this is their attitude towards us. So right. we really, uh, you know, our task of the next decade is to step away from China as much as we possibly can, which is going to be kind of hard. Very hard. And you see it in, you know, in this little Shanghai cooperation summit that Xi and Putin were at. And, and the problem is, you know, China has something to offer Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan. Trade, and in their cases, rail transportation to the European Union, other things. But, you know, there is no national economy out there that's not pretty tightly interlaced with China. But here in America, we are a little bit unique in having choices in that area. It wasn't like that 20 years ago, and we can make the choice to shift away some of that production. And that is just, we are going to just have to start doing that in order to control the the communist colossus that China has become. Right, yeah. Probably the best way to get at them is economically. And as, as you pointed out, I yeah, know that, that is their number one. That's their number one priority, and that is the best way to get at them is is to um, is to bring down that trade deficit and stop making it so easy for them to make money off of us. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Like my, my my last question, I guess, is, is I'm I'm concerned about you know Europe coming up in this winter, considering that Russia provides all that oil and heating things to uh, Europe. How do, you, how do you see that playing out? Oh, this is going to be tough. I think the Europeans are, the European governments are braced and ready, but there will be rationing and shortages in some countries. The situations vary enormously depending on, you know, you take the case of Poland where they were able to make some adjustments they started earlier and they adjusted more quickly. Um, Finland has completely adjusted. Of course, they are now NATO members. Uh, the Germany is the tough one. Germany has tried to stockpile natural natural gas, which they do every winter anyway. But right now, the, the famous Nord Stream pipeline, not only is there no Nord Stream 2, Nord Stream 1 has been turned off by Russia for maintenance. <laughs> so, you know, but that is... is just is making it tough for Germany to, uh, to to fill up what they need for the winter time. A lot of compensations with movement of fuel through uh, ships and other things, but you know, there's just no question the European nations, many of them, are going to have um, an energy crunch this winter. What I see, though, is and that's our interview with Rebecca Grant, and I, I hope that you enjoyed it. It's, it's always so informative when we get the opportunity to talk with her about what's going on in the world. And as I mentioned uh, during the interview, we're going to have her back on uh, in January. She always does a 
really the first program of the year to let us know what we need to keep our eyes open for. So as we come up to the end of today's program, I want to remind you about our fundraiser that is coming up on the 25th. And that is our Radio on the River. We've got some great gifts that you want to come out there. U.S. Wings has donated one of their Maverick flight jackets. We've got the authors from Beyond Belief section, uh, selection of books. Lots of authors' books have sent us uh, autographed copies. And we want to make sure that you come on out and do that. So go to veteransradio.net, click on Radio on the River, and support Veterans Radio. And we will be back next week live from the river front, which should be an interesting experience. So we're excited to see you then. And until then, this is Dale Thrombray for Veterans Radio, and you are dismissed.